Genesis chapter 34, we read of the affairs of Dinah or Dina and uh, Shechem, and then the aftermath of that, which results in the massacre of the city of Shechem. Chapter 34. Now, Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you, Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor, with deceit, and spoke to them, because he had defiled Dina, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves. And we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. So, Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men cons consent to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised, as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son 
Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. And they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to gather together as your people to study your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. And thank you, Father, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it abides forever. It remains, Lord, and it remains here for our benefit, for our salvation and sanctification. Thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you for saving us from our sins and giving us a desire to know you better, to love you, and to follow you faithfully according to your word. We pray, Lord, that as we meditate and reflect on these words in this chapter, that you'll teach us what you have for us, that you'll guide us by your Holy Spirit and fulfill your will in us. Grant us these things by your grace and in Christ. Amen. Well, this chapter, chapter 34, is certainly a very tragic and eventful chapter. We have here the defilement of Dina, the daughter of Leah and Jacob, but also the aftermath of it, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, who were also daughters or sons of, of Leah. So that means that they were full brothers of Dina. We have here their anger and their deceit which results in the massacre of the city, especially of the men of the city, and looting and plundering all that was in the city. Then we have an exchange at the end of the chapter, what Jacob thinks of it and what Simeon and Levi think of what they did. Well, this chapter, what people wonder, interpreters wonder, why is it here and what is its place in this section of Scripture? Well, for one, we remember that from chapter 28, verse 10, and through 3515, from 2810 to 3515, Jacob, when he left Canaan to head to Padan Aram, he made a vow, and God appeared to him at Bethel, at the city of Bethel, which he named, renamed it. It was Luz, and then he named it Bethel, that he made a vow to God in verses 20 to 21. 28, 20 to 21, that if God brought him back to the land of Canaan and to Bethel safely, then he would 
um, give a tenth of all to God and the Lord would be his God, a confirmation of the Lord being his God. Well, that does not happen until chapter 35, 1 to 15, that he finally returns to Bethel. Well, what happens between him leaving Padanaram and coming back to Bethel? Well, in chapter 33, 32 and 33, he was fearful that his brother Esau might find him and attack him so that his return would be unsuccessful. In chapter 34, we have another incident that jeopardizes his safe return to Bethel. And that is this massacre of the city by Simeon and Levi. And therefore, if Jacob and his whole clan is wiped out, destroyed, then they're not going to return to Bethel. Not only are they not going to return to Bethel, but the Christological promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not be fulfilled. Christ would not come into the world if the massacre of Jacob and his clan are actually carried out by the Canaanites and the Perizzites, as Jacob fears, in chapter 34, verse 30. Furthermore, we see that Jacob had troubles in his household. Another reason for this, it reminds us of the fact that from the beginning of time, even in Adam and Eve's household with Cain and Abel, there was trouble within the very family. Trouble in terms of jealousy, anger, fits of anger, and that led to murder in the case of Cain against Abel. In the case of Simeon and Levi too, it leads to murder. And that was because of their excessive anger and the fulfillment of their excessive anger in the massacre of the men of the city. Well, Jacob has to deal with these trials, just like Adam and Eve did. Abraham had problems in his household. Isaac did. Jacob also does. And that's the same with all of us. There will be trouble in our immediate household and then by extension to other parts of society. Jacob experiences the same. We'll also learn some lessons about this incident or tragedy between Shechem and Dina, and also the the dialogue that takes place, the negotiations that take place at the court of the city, which was meeting in the gate of the city, a prominent public place where transactions and contracts were negotiated. Let's review it, starting at verse 1, chapter 34, Verse 1, it says, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. We're told that she is the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob. In chapter 30, verse 21, that's where her birth and her name is even mentioned. Her birth and her name is mentioned in chapter 30, verse 21, where she is said to be the daughter of Jacob and Leah. In a list and an account of all the males or all the sons that are born, there's this one daughter whose name is mentioned. When scripture does things like that, it doesn't do it by accident. It often does it by anticipation. It may take a few paragraphs or even a few chapters later for us to know why the name was mentioned, but that was likely the reason why the name was mentioned. And Dina, she has two or four brothers from Jacob and Leah. 
full brothers, that is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, which is at the end of chapter 29. Those four brothers were born. And then in chapter 30, Dina is born. And other, uh, there's also two more brothers that are born full brothers of her. Well, it also tells us when it says she's the daughter of Leah, this indicates that likely the children of Leah were raised up or spent their day-to-day activities in Leah's tent because each of the wives had their own tent. The husbands did not stay all the time in the tent of their wives. We see this from chapter 31 and verse 33 that Leah, in fact, had a tent. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. It's quite clear that each of these wives have different tents. Also, we see in chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 67, Sarah's tent, 2467. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This may explain how or why Jacob did not perhaps know or realize what was going on when Dina left Leah's tent in order to go visit or to see the daughters of the land, the women in the country where they were residing temporarily. Perhaps this is what was happening. Furthermore, we're told that she went out to visit the daughters of the land, to visit or literally to see. Dina goes out to see the daughters of the land, and then we see in verse 2, that Shechem saw her. She goes out to see the daughters, but Shechem sees her. She went for a certain purpose, but Shechem had another purpose with his eyes. Well, also, we're told in verse 1 that these are the daughters of the land. The text of Scripture does not say what motivated her to go see the daughters of the land. Now, it's likely, based on extra-biblical sources and even based on the certainty that Dina seems to have that she will see the daughters of the land, that there was some celebration happening in the city, some celebration, some festival, something like that happening so that there would be uh, a time of festivities where the women would be there and she could intermingle with them and enjoy their company in whatever they were doing. Probably something like that. Not necessarily the the case, but probably the case that it was a unique occasion, and that's why she went out. The daughters of the land are not typically favorable people. Not typically favorable people. We learn, starting in chapter 24, that there has been this apprehension and suspicion of the daughters 
of the land, of the land of Canaan. In 24, verse 3, when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife outside of this land among their relatives, he warns his servant, and we'll find certain of these warnings or um, apprehensions starting in chapter 24, 24, 3. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. 24, 37. 24, 37. And my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. 26.35, when Esau did marry wives from the daughters of the land, 26.35, it says, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. 27, chapter 27.46, 27.46, and Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac said to Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Verse 6, 28, 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take to himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Verse 8. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased or literally were evil in the eyes of his father Isaac. Evil in the eyes of Isaac. Therefore, it's not a good thing that Dina is mingling with the daughters of the land, that she wants to see them or visit them. It's not a good thing. She is putting herself in jeopardy, spiritual jeopardy, theological and moral jeopardy, because the Canaanites worship idols and their Morals are not like the household of Jacob. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. The Hivites, they are one of the local Canaanite peoples. Sometimes the Canaanites are referred to as Canaanites generally, sometimes specifically in reference to a specific region of the land of Canaan. Another common name is the Amorites, the Amorites to describe either a locality or the whole region, Amorites. But occasionally in Scripture, we'll find a specific designation that's more ethnic and specific to a location. And the Hivites, they are one of them. Hivites, or as we see in 3430, the Perizzites, which also lived in that north-central region of the land of Canaan. There are several other names mentioned. These Hivites 
were a group that was also prohibited specifically for the people of Israel to marry. There was a prohibition in reference to them. And in fact, when Joshua conquered the land of Canaan in Joshua chapter 9, he was supposed to obliterate them, conquer them, and destroy them all. But specifically, the prohibition to marry any of them, to take them up in marriage, sons or daughters, Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6. 7, 1 to 6. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, the Hivites, the same as chapter Genesis 34, 2, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We don't know what all Dina's intentions were, but at least she is putting herself in harm's way by mingling with the people of the land. Well, harm comes to her. She was defiled. It says in Genesis 34, 2, Shechem, the prince of the land. Now, the prince of the land has reference to his royalty and his succession to the throne. As in many other parts of the world, at that time and through most of history, each city or region would have kings. It wasn't as though kings controlled vast territories. Whenever that happened, we call them empires. Even in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in North America, there were various cities and localities where there were kings or chiefs that reigned and ruled in that way. And that's the same here at this point with Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite. They are in Shechem, and he is named after one of the ancestors of this city. He is not named, um, or the ancestor was not uh, later, or, or the descendant was not later. It was likely a previous ancestor because he's called Shechem, the son of Hamor, but the city was also already called Shechem. So it was likely some previous ancestor who was named that, and then he was given this name or at least the name from the name of the city, if not an ancestor. Well, what happens? The problem is as usual. He saw, he took, he lay. He saw, he took, he lay. 
He saw, he took, and that's when the sin occurs. This seeing and taking of sin, and it being sin is the same as in Genesis 3. Eve saw, she took, and then she ate. She saw, she took, and then she ate. And this is typical even of sexual sin. One sees, one takes, and then one lays with her. There is a question, somewhat of a question, on the translation. Should it say that he took and he lay with her, or that because it is saying in the New American Standard, 1975, and even 1995 edition, he lay with her by force, should it be rendered in some other way? And the translations, they differ, but basically have the gist of the NASB. That is, he raped her. He raped her. However, let me suggest that there might be a possibility that it wasn't completely rape in the usual sense of the word. It might have been, but not necessarily so. Because literally this word, your footnote may say, for verse 2, and humbled her, and humbled her, meaning that she was deflowered, or she was not in a relationship that necessarily was properly arranged and suitable for sexual relations. In that sense, she was humbled. In some cases, in dealing with sexual connotations, sexual context, it does mean to rape. There is no doubt about it. Such as in Judges chapter 20, the Levite's concubine, she was raped. There is no doubt about it. In 2 Samuel 13, 2 Samuel 13, Tamar, the daughter of David and sister of Absalom, she was raped by her brother Amnon. Amnon raped her, and there this same word is used uh, four times in that chapter to describe what he did to her, and she objected. She did not do that willingly. He did, in fact, force her or rape her. So it is used in that way. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 24, it's not exactly rape. Deuteronomy chapter 22, and we'll start at verse 23. 23 to 24. 22, 23. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus, you shall purge the evil from among you. Our word is in verse 24, translated in this passage, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Or if we render it literally, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. 
Well, in this case, the woman is engaged to her husband, and legally, between engagement and actual marriage, the wedding day, they are considered husband and wife, just like Matthew chapter 1, Joseph and Mary. While Mary was engaged to Joseph, she became pregnant, and Joseph wondered what in the world has happened, and he was ready to divorce her, it says. Well, in this case, the same way, legally, they were husband and wife, though officially they had not come together as husband and wife because the wedding had not taken place. But here it says in verses 23 to 24, another man finds her in the city and he lies with her. Well, the question is, did she lie with this other man in the city willingly or unwillingly? In this context, it assumes that she willingly did so. Because, in verse 24, she did not cry out in the city. She did not cry out. If she cried out, then it would have been clear she was raped. She had relations with him unwillingly. Yet, even though she did it willingly in verse 24, it still said that she was humbled. She was humbled and... Therefore, she and he, the adulterer and the adulteress, deserve to be put to death. In contrast, let's read verses 25 to 29. Different scenarios. But if in the field the man finds a girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death, for just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. Our word does not occur in this passage, the word to humble. It's not in this passage, but the word forces her is there. This is another Hebrew word in verse 25 forces her, it's a different Hebrew word, which literally has to do with grabbing and forcing, seizing. And this is what happens in verses 25 to 27. So in this case, she is not guilty because she cried out. She was desperate and she cried out. She did not want to do it. She was unwilling. Therefore, only the man should be put to death. This is an engaged girl and a man who rapes her, 25 to 27. Verses 28 and 29, we have a third scenario. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her He cannot divorce her all his days. In this case, in verses 28 and 29, we do have another word for grabbing or seizing. In verse 28, it says, and seizes her. It's not the same word that we have in Genesis 34, but we do have that same word in verse 29. 
because he has humbled her or violated her. In verses 28 and 29, we do have unwilling rape. So it's unwilling sexual relations, which equates to rape in verses 28 and 29. When that happens, the man is to give the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and he is to marry her. This assumes, however, that the father is willing. The father might be unwilling for that to happen. How do we know that? We have a parallel in Exodus 22, 16, and 17. A parallel to Deuteronomy 28, uh, 22, 28, and 29 is found in Exodus 22. 22, 16, and 17, here we have the will of the Father involved. 22, 16. And if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. We have in 16, seduction. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged. This is likely the case of Dina. She was not engaged, but she likely was seduced. Seduced enticed to do so. Then, since he did so, what should Shechem do? He must pay a dowry. How much? We know in chapter 34, he is willing to present whatever Jacob and Jacob's sons say. From Deuteronomy 22, it said at least, or probably the maximum, 50 shekels of silver which is no insignificant amount of money. Okay? So that amount of silver, on a condition though, what if the father doesn't want his daughter to marry the man? Verse 17, If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. Jacob could say, considering the circumstances, I'll just take the dowry payment, I'll just take the money, and not have my daughter marry you. And likely, as was typical, if this kind of tragedy occurred to a young girl, then the father would keep the girl who had been defiled in his own household. And if the father passed away, then in the household of one of the brothers and she would remain unmarried for the rest of her life. That would likely have been the scenario for Dina. And perhaps that actually did happen to her. Because she is mentioned by name in Genesis 46, and nowhere does it say that she was married and had children. Likely that's what happened, and that's probably the reason why Brothers were often a part of the negotiations when a marriage took place, whether a legitimate marriage or some illegitimate uh, circumstance like fornication or rape had occurred beforehand, why brothers would be involved because it was in their interest to know who their sister was marrying. 
because of the future and the monetary implications and the concern for the care of their sister. Well, Jacob had this scenario presented to him. Jacob and Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, had this scenario presented. Let's see further what happens. Genesis 34, verse 3. And he, that is Shechem, was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. We find here that Moses and the Holy Spirit are telling us that though Shechem did wrong to violate her, to humble her, he at least had some humanity in him and genuine love for her. He wanted her to be his wife. He wanted to take care of her as his own wife. It says it clearly in verse 3. He loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her, not in any false way, but in a genuine sense. Also, 3419, 34.19, the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. He delighted in Dina and he was very willing to be circumcised even though he was a young man. We don't know how old he was, but not only was he a young man, but others were young in the city. And whoever, whatever age, even Hamor, Shechem's father, they were all willing, they were all delighted to be circumcised, even though it was a strange, unusual custom and right for them to practice. They had not done that ever before, yet they were presented with that and they were willing, happily willing to do so. I said, we don't know how old Shechem was. In the case of Dina, she was likely about 15 years old, about 15. And this is the case because she was born in Padan Aram before Jacob and the clan left there to return to the land of Canaan. She was born there. And they remained there after she was born and after Joseph was born there at least six years and then they return to Canaan and they're making their way to Bethel. And therefore, if they're making their way to Bethel, likely it happened within the first year of them returning back to the land of Canaan. It's hard to believe that Jacob would have delayed so long to return to Bethel to fulfill his vow. And if that's the case, then Joseph would have been the youngest of that sequence of sons and daughter. And Joseph would have been six years old by the time of Genesis chapter 34. Joseph was 17 years old by Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37 verse 2, which says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was 17 at that point. That means that his sister had likely been a few years older than he and at least old enough to wander off to enjoy herself with the daughters of the land. So probably at least a teenager around 15 or 16 years old. 
That's how old she was. 34.4. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Here uh, is another example of Shechem's humanity and basic decency, though, of course, we know he failed miserably in the previous verses. At least here, he knew the authority of his father, that he should submit to his father and let his father handle the negotiations with the father of the daughter or the father of the girl, with Dinah or Jacob's father and Jacob's sons. He at least knew that to go through the right chain of command, (coughs) chain of authority to handle the marriage arrangement. He did not speak of taking her away, eloping, uh, doing things by secret, deceit, even though he did wrong in the first case, he wanted to make up for it and make sure everything was all right, which is good. And now remember, Hamor and Shechem are unbelievers. They are idolaters. Yet even they, in their society, had some level of decency and civility to conduct themselves this way. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Clearly, she was defiled and it was a wrong thing. It says so in verse 5. She was defiled. Verse 7, it says, The men were grieved, very angry, and a disgraceful thing had happened, something that ought not to be done. Verse 7. It says in verse 13, He had defiled Dina, their sister. It says also in um, verse 31, uh, no, 27, 27. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. And then 31, but they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? It's quite clear then that this was a sin, a sin that occurred between them. But Jacob... He keeps silent, verse 5 says, until the sons of Jacob come in from the field. Being shepherds, they had to come in from the field before Jacob could explain to them what happened. And why would he explain to them what happened? Remember we said that not only father, but brothers would be involved with the negotiations. In... Chapter 24, verses 50 to 60. In chapter 24, verses 50 to 60, when it's time for Rebekah to be married to Isaac, notice who is there with these negotiations. In chapter 24, verse 50, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Then verse 53, 53, And the servant brought out articles of silver silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother, brother and mother, who are there with this negotiation. Further, it says in verse 
57. And they said, plural, and they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Verse 58. And then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Verse 60. Verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. The brothers are there. Jacob knows he has a dilemma on his hands, but he cannot make a unilateral decision on what to do. So he waits for his sons to arrive from the field. It says he kept silent. Keeping silent is not necessarily something evil. We know it doesn't say he was outraged, he was very angry. It doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is doing wrong in keeping silent. In chapter 24, verse 21, the servant of Abraham also keeps silent. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Jacob probably is keeping silent, contemplating what he needs to say and do at the right time, especially when he consults his sons, the brothers of Dina. Verse 6, 34, 6. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because she had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. They clearly understand that this was wrong. And nothing like this should be done in Israel because it taints and tarnishes the name of Israel. Because Israel's name is related to God's name, and this therefore should not be done. The godly should not have these kinds of indecencies exposed in their midst. This is also an expression made by uh, Tamar, the daughter of David and brother of, or sister of Absalom. In 2 Samuel, 12, or 2 Samuel 13, verse 12, she says something similar to her brother. Don't do this. Don't rape me because you're going to be a fool and such a thing should not be done in Israel. Whether in Israel the clan or Israel as the country or Israel as the true people of God or Israel as the church, the true people of God, this should not be done. It should not be done when these kinds of sins occur. So they have a right perspective on it. They have a right perspective. However, their right perspective leads to sin because they did not control their actions. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Hamor speaks in verse 8, then Shechem speaks in verse 11, father and son. Hamor rightly explains the longing Shechem has to marry her, and then proceeds to describe the benefits. If we intermarry, then all of this fertile land will belong to both of us. And you can live freely here instead of renting land for your flocks. Instead of doing this temporarily, you could inherit it permanently. As well, intermarry with us and we will be, since we are a peaceful people, we see you to be a peaceful people. Let's be peaceful and prosperous together. Peace, prosperity, and progeny all together at one time. That's the proposal. Shechem also shows his eagerness to marry her by saying, whatever the bridal payment and gift, which would mean whatever we need to give to her, to Dina, and whatever we need to give to her family, to her parents and brothers, whatever we must give as payments and gifts, we will do so. Remember, we just read Genesis 24, 53. Abraham's servant came ready with those payments and gifts for Rebekah and Rebekah's family in chapter 24, showing their ability to provide for the potential wife, the ability to provide and the gratefulness to establish a relationship with another family and another clan, another tribe. This is what they are proposing. Verse 13, 13 to 17. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit and spoke to them because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They speak with deceit because they're trying to recompense to them, to them and the inhabitants of the city, a recompense that is excessive, so that's why they have to lie about it. They have to deceive. They think they are justified because she was defiled. But what could the alternative have been? The alternative could have been that if he legitimately converts, then he could marry her, right? Then there should not be any problems then whatever the bridal payment and gifts, just like it says in Exodus 22, 16 and 17, if the father wanted to ensure that his daughter married a good man that would take care of his daughter, and in this case, even be willing to convert, then that should have been sufficient. Sufficient, but it was not for her brothers. It does not specify in verse 13 It's just as Jacob's sons. Even in verse 7, the sons of Jacob. Um, But by the time we get to verses 25 and 30, it explicitly mentions Simeon and Levi in verses 25 and 30. The majority of the brothers may have been involved with the initial negotiations, 
But it's unclear whether the majority of the brothers also partook of plundering and massacring the city, the men of the city. It's uncertain. Perhaps they were involved. However, it's unlikely that Joseph was involved because of how young he was. He was likely about six years old. Joseph was probably not involved with this, but perhaps the others were. Certainly, Simeon and Levi were involved. Certainly, they were. And they were the ones likely who had this plot to speak deceitfully. Well, in 14 to 17, they say, we can't do this unless all of your men are circumcised, which they take from the rite or the ritual started in Genesis 17, 10 to 12. In Genesis 17, verse 10, God instituted circumcision for Abraham and Abraham's male descendants. But also there could be converts to Israel by means of circumcision. That would be the initiation rite, that they were wanting to believe in the God of Israel and worship with Israel and believe in the truth, the faith, the gospel with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their believing descendants. That was a possibility for Gentiles. This is the possibility they present. And because of this possibility, it seems that Jacob, thinking that they actually wanted to do this, both sides actually wanted to do it. The brothers presenting this proposal and the men of the city also wanted to do this. Genuinely, they wanted to do it. Jacob thinks, okay, we're making the best of this tragedy of Dina's defilement. We're making the best of it. Probably Jacob had this in mind because Jacob is shocked and horrified by what his sons do by the end of the chapter. Is he not? He did not expect them to do that. So likely he himself was deceived by his own sons, what the intentions were. 18 and following, 18. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us, therefore let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live uh, to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. And all who went out of the gate of the, his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. In 18 to 24, Hamor and Shechem go to the gate. That is the court, area of the court of the city. An example, a clear example of this is in Ruth chapter 4, when Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, he went to the gate of the city where the elders and the men of authority, the, the city men, the men of reputation and the council of the city 
would go there and negotiations, contracts, marriages, they were all conducted there to confirm matters within their limits, within their jurisdiction. So that's what they would do. The same here with the Shechemites. They did the same. They went there because it says that he was more respected than all the household of his father, verse 19, Shechem, which means Shechem normally led a reputed life, an honorable life, even among the pagans. So he was not known to be a thief, a murderer, a, a, a cheater, a robber, or a rapist. He was not that. He was not that, generally speaking, so he had a good reputation. Because he had a good reputation, all the men said, yes, let's go ahead and do it. And the proposal, perhaps there is a bit of covetousness here. Um, the proposal included, listen, we're going to become more wealthy if we do so. Even though they are few compared to us, they do have a lot of wealth, and we're going to be able to share the wealth. It's going to be better for us. Likely they had some covetousness and greed with this proposal. However, they're all willing to be circumcised. This strange custom, strange to them, they were willing to do it because they saw the benefits of it. Verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. And they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. The third day, it says it's the day of pain. It says it clearly in verse 25, when they were in pain. Apparently, with this custom, on the third day, and especially with adults, but on the third day after circumcision, there is the potential for severe pain and fever, which debilitates the men who are circumcised. Temporarily, it makes them unable to walk about freely and to carry on business as usual. They have to wait for the, their body to heal. Jacob's son, Simeon and Levi, knowing this, plotted to attack these men on that third day when they were in the time of most pain and inability to defend themselves. They massacred the whole city, including the royalty of the city like Hamor and Shechem. They plundered everything and took away all the people except all the men that they massacred. They took away all of them from them. Well, when this happens, verses 30 to 31, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, since they were the culprits, they were the culprits of excessive anger which led them to sin. 
You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Jacob fears that everything is going to be lost. This, on the surface, if we are prone to looking for fault in Jacob, one might say, well, he's just worried about his own skin. But I think that there's more involved because he's worried about his whole clan. If his whole clan perishes, then there is no Christ. He loses everyone. And is he not supposed to, as the patriarch of this clan, is he not supposed to protect them? Isn't that one of his chief duties, to protect them? And he says, the Canaanites and Perizzites, not meaning these Hivites because the men were massacred, but the other ones in the same region, when they hear about this, they're going to fear for their own lives and they might preempt us from doing any harm to them if they suspect it. They might preempt it by attacking us. What have you done? Were you not thinking ahead? Simeon and Levi? We do know that he was headed to Bethel. 35, 1 to 15 says so. It does end up happening that God protects him as God promised he would, yet it was still Jacob's responsibility to be concerned for his own protection, to do what was necessary. In 35, 5, it does say that God protected him. 35, 5. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This translation, great terror, is unfortunate. It should be something like a terror of God, or the dread of God, or a divine dread came upon them. Your footnote may say so for verse 5. It was divinely orchestrated or appointed terror. We find other examples of God doing this on behalf of his people in Exodus 23:27 and Deuteronomy 2:25. Deuteronomy 2:25 and Exodus 23:27. God promises that he will protect his people by bringing a dread of God on the people and in those passages it clearly does say the terror of God or the dread of God. Just to name a couple of examples. This is several times in the Old Testament the case that the dread of God falls on them. Well, verse 31. They answered. They answered in obstinance, in arrogance. Should he treat our sister as a harlot? No. Even Jacob doesn't like that. Nobody likes that. But they are accusing their father of not taking it seriously or not doing what was right. We did what was right. You did not do what was right. You did not take it as far as you should have taken it. The way it ends, this passage ends this way. Some have said that since Simeon and Levi had the last word, Therefore, they were in the right, Jacob was in the wrong, because the passage ends like this. Sometimes this is the case. 
However, if we are careful students of Scripture, we will find that it's not always the case that when sin occurs, the one who has the last word in that given passage or in that given chapter necessarily has the right perspective. Examples. Examples. Genesis 27. Uh, examples of something negative and that it's not necessarily the end of the matter. Genesis 27, 45. Something negative and not necessarily the end of the matter. 27, 45. Until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what he did to him. Then I shall send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Sounds like it's going to end in disaster, but it doesn't. Chapter 37, chapter 37 and verse 35. Chapter 37, verse 35. After Joseph is presumed by Jacob to have been devoured by a wild beast. 37, 35. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. His father wept for him, thinking that all was lost in reference to Joseph. We know that that was not the case. By the time we keep reading in the book of Genesis, Joseph becomes the ruler of Egypt. Just a couple of examples that just because something ends on a note like that, a negative note, does not necessarily mean that that's the end of the matter. We have to seek for a further reference. So do we have one? Yes. We have a further reference as to what Jacob thought and did to his son Simeon and Levi for their excessive anger. Genesis 49 5 to 7. Genesis 49, 5. This is known as the blessing of Israel or Jacob on his sons. And notice what it says in 49, 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger, they slew men. And in their self-will, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. He curses them. He curses his two sons by causing them to be scattered throughout the nation of Israel. This was fulfilled in that the Levites did not have their own territory. They were, they had to resort to living in cities instead of territories. Happens in the time of Moses and Joshua. And in the case of Simeon, Simeon did not receive his own unique territory, but he received a plot within the tribe of Judah, and eventually, over time, he was 
subsumed into Judah. He disappears. Simeon disappears and merges into Judah because of what he did, what Simeon, the patriarch, did. So the curse was fulfilled. This was not the only time, by the way, in Jacob's life where he keeps silent and holds off. We're still in Genesis 49. In 49, 3 to 4, 49, 3 to 4, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, what did Reuben do that even he is cursed right here? Reuben is cursed. Reuben should have received a double portion of the inheritance. But his double portion was removed. He only received one portion. And Joseph, by his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, received the double portion. Joseph did. It was stripped from Reuben and given to Joseph. What did Reuben do? Reuben committed adultery with Bilhah, the wife and concubine of Jacob. In Genesis 35, 22, he did it, and all it says there is that Israel heard of it. But it doesn't say what he did about it. He does something here in Genesis 49. He curses Reuben for doing so. The same is happening in Genesis 34. Simeon and Levi sinned because their anger was Excessive. Instead of having a just penalty, they went beyond the just penalty. Instead of trying to make the best of the matter, they made the matter worse. One example of us practicing restraint and doing according to the occasion for a just penalty. Leviticus 24, Leviticus 24, 17 to 20. Leviticus 24:17 And if a man takes the life of any human being he shall surely be put to death and the one who takes the life of an animal shall make a good life for life and if a man injures his neighbor just as he has done so it shall be done to him fracture for fracture eye for eye tooth for tooth just as he has injured a man so it shall be inflicted on him This law is teaching the law of just retribution. In the penalty, there should not be an excessive penalty for the crime committed. But one should seek for an equal payment or equal retribution for the crime committed. Clearly, Simeon and Levi went over, and Jacob eventually does confront them on the matter. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.